Good morning, church. Thanks for joining us on this Sunday morning. It's so great to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at Reality. And like Rashad just said, I'm going to be continuing our sermon series through this season of Lent. And we're looking at the text that you just heard read from Matthew 26, and it's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his arrest, right after the upper room and right before his arrest. And so we see Jesus in this moment, like he knows that his, his hour of trial and the biggest hurdle um, in his life on earth is, is still yet to come. It's right before him. Like he's on the precipice of facing his biggest and final challenge. And what does Jesus do? It's interesting to think, like, what does Jesus do to prepare himself for this final challenge? You think of, like, athletes, right? Athletes will, how do they prepare themselves for the, you know, for the big game, the final, you know, fourth quarter, the ninth inning, stoppage time, whatever the sport is, right? How do they get themselves ready to perform their highest at the very end of the very last game and the very last moment of the season to achieve their biggest goals? Or what do we do? Like whether we have a big exam or a big interview, a big um, presentation, whatever it might be, you're running an, an experiment, right? Like whatever it is, like how do we prepare for those things, right? There's always this process, this this mindset that you want to get into to, to put your best foot forward and to be able to, to tackle the challenge as best you can. Even before pushing record on this sermon, it's like what had to get in the zone or I get my mind ready to speak. And so we see Jesus here, he's preparing himself for the final struggle. And it makes me wonder how do we prepare ourselves for the daily challenges, the daily struggles of living for God, of seeking his will and then doing his will in the midst of a world that doesn't care about that. And in a world that's broken with so many challenges, so much uh, sin and shame and brokenness, like how do we live for God in the midst of that? How do we do God's will when it's something that we don't want to do? Like Jesus here, right? That's where we find Jesus. He knows the end is coming and he is really looking for another way. He really wants there to be another option. There's only hours left and he's trying to find, he's got this colossal challenge ahead of him and he's wondering, is there another way? When reflecting on how Jesus is choosing to spend his final hours, Alicia Britt Cole, who we're using her book, 40 Days of Decrease for our, our Lent devotionals this year, you can find those on our, our New Mighty Networks page. Um, she says this, she says, Jesus could have held one more meeting or preached one more sermon or healed one more person. Instead, he invested the time in raw, honest, and agonizing prayer. Jesus chooses to surround himself with his closest companions and pray. This deep, emotional, honest prayer where he lays himself bare before God. He's grappling with the reality of the end, the reality of what's to come, the reality that he has to face this final obstacle to, to reach the finish line of his mission. And as we explore this story more deeply, there's so many things that we can draw out about, about prayer, about community, about the will of God, and so we're going to dive into that more deeply right now. So like we said, prior to the passage, Jesus 
just to set the context here, Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples. They're having the, the Passover supper, the last supper. He has, uh, and it's kind of like this, this decently awkward set of interactions. Like Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then he does the whole like bread and wine, like body and blood thing. And then he tells them all that they're all going to abandon him. And then he tells Peter specifically, like, Peter, you're going to deny me. And it's kind of like, man, like, Jesus, you're being a real downer. Like, this is supposed to be like a celebratory meal. The Passover is like this big deal. Why is everything so gloomy? But Jesus is trying to prepare them for what lies ahead. And so they leave the upper room. They head out to the Mount of Olives. And they come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means oil press in Aramaic. So it's, it's basically like this olive orchard, this orchard of olive trees. And so they go in, Jesus is with the 11 because Judas is off doing his thing now. And they go in with the 11, Jesus leaves eight of them in one part and goes further into the garden with Peter, James, and John, kind of his inner circle. And it's not that Jesus is like playing favorites here, but this is the way that like discipleship and, and Jesus' mission worked, right? He had the three who he revealed himself the most deeply to, right? They're here with him in Gethsemane. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were with him when he healed um, Jairus' daughter. Like he has this, they are privy to like a few more things than the nine were. But the 12 were obviously privy to a lot more of Jesus than the crowds were. And so there, there, there's these rings of, the way that Jesus is discipling, right? He has the crowds who he teaches to, he has his 12 who gets the inside message, and then he has the three who are like his real inner ring. And so Jesus, he wants to go into these final moments with his closest friends at his side. He needs community, he wants to be surrounded by community and not isolated. He doesn't want to face it alone. And so we see in verse 38, I love the way that the Good News Translation translates this. Verse 38, he says, The sorrow, he says this to Peter, James, and John. He says, The sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. Jesus isn't checked out of this moment, right? He's fully engaged. He's fully feeling the weight of what is upon him, of what is to come. This isn't like the stoic face Jesus that you sometimes see in art where he has this kind of like unaffected look on his face that just kind of like, oh, Jesus, right? Like bored, checked out Jesus. No, this is like fully engaged Jesus. He's feels the weight of crushing sorrow. He feels it to the fullest in the depths of his being, in his soul, and he wants support. And so from there, he tells them, he says, keep watch with me. Like, literally, keep watch just basically means, like, stay awake, right? Like, you have watchmen on the walls, right? The watchmen watch the city to see if anybody's going to come and attack it in the night. Their whole job is just to stay awake, stay alert, keep guard. So he tells his disciples, stay awake with me. It's all he wants them to do is to be awake, to be present, to be there, not to do anything. And it's amazing to see Jesus' need for human companionship, his desire for it. Like he, he wants it in this final moments. He doesn't want to face it alone. 
if there's any doubt in your mind about whether or not you like need to be in community, you need to be in a relationship in order to walk with God and to follow him in the midst of, of trials and challenges and, and opposition and suffering, like Jesus' example here should eliminate that question, that doubt. Relational community is essential to seeking and discerning and following the will of God. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in isolation. Even Jesus, who is God, doesn't do it on his own. So then Jesus, he, he goes a little bit further in than the three. He goes off on his own to pray for a bit. And he falls on his face in this earnest and agonizing prayer. And he says, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And so really quickly, uh, this cup, he talk, he's talking about this cup be taken away from me. Uh, the cup is an image that comes from the Old Testament that Jesus is drawing on. He's, he's drawing on this from, from Isaiah, from a few other places. It, it pops up a few different times. Um, and, and the cup represents God's wrath. It's God's wrath poured out on sin, like pouring it out of a cup. And Jesus, he's, he, he recognizes that it's his responsibility, his role is actually to drink this cup of God's wrath poured out upon sin as a substitute. You know, it's supposed to be you and me for our sins, drinking our own, uh, the responsibility we have for our sins and the wrath of God. But Jesus, he's going to take that cup. He's going to take the wrath and drink it for us as a substitute. But he asks in this final hour, like, if it's possible, if there's another way besides me drinking the cup, like, show me. And we learn a lot about Jesus' prayer life in this moment. We see him engaged in this emotional, honest prayer. Like, he doesn't hold back his request. He, he genuinely outright says, like, let the cup pass. Like, let this be taken away from me. Like, I don't really want to do it. If there's any other way, let it be so. But at the same time, he says this with an open hand, right? He doesn't say, like, this cup must pass for me. He says, if it's your will, let it pass. So he has this open, this open-handedness to what the will of God and the way of God is going to be. He wants there to be another way, but recognizes that it's going to be okay if it isn't, if there isn't another way, because that means that this is God's way. It's an example for us to approach God with the desires of our heart, with honesty, with truthfulness, right? And to ha ask him in expectant faith, but with an open hand, knowing that his way is better than our own, whether it is for the cup to pass or for the cup to remain. And it's really easy to say that, like that's so much easier to say than to do. Like if you're like me, it's way easier to tell God what we want and to say it like, I want this, closed hands, closed fists, like you're going to have to pray it out of my cold, dead hands if you like want to take it away from me. It's like really hard to pray with open-handedness and to submit ourselves to like what the will of God is. Because it requires, like to do this, it requires that we trust that God is good and that his way is best. And we, if, I mean, we, me, I tend to trust that I'm good, that I know what's best, that I have a good plan and I have my own best in mind. 
But in reality, we need to trust that God's way is best, that God has the best in mind, that his way is ultimately good. And that's really hard, but Jesus models it for us here in this very real moment. It's, this is a really real moment. Like Jesus could have opted out at this point. Like there's this real moment of prayer, but his heart is focused on the truth that God is good and that his way is best. And he has a trust in the goodness of God's plan. And we come to the next scene and we see that, that Jesus, he comes back to the three, back to Peter, James, and John, and he finds them asleep. Like they're literally unable to do the one simple thing that he asked of them to stay awake. And it's worse than it cuts deep. He says, could you not stay awake one hour? I think about it. They are fishermen. They're young fishermen by trade. And fishermen would stay out all night fishing, right? Like it's, it was often a nighttime job and they could, they could go out and fish for hours and hours and hours and stay up all night long looking for fish, doing their job. But here they are with Jesus in his moment of need and they're unable to stay awake for even an hour. And this time Jesus, he says, he doesn't just say stay awake this time. He says, stay awake and pray, stay awake and pray. He adds prayer in there. So he's saying that they must resent, they must resist the temptation to, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The, the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. And, and what I think is actually happening here is that Jesus, he's encouraging them to pray, not so much for himself, but for their own sakes. He wants them to pray for their own sakes, to prepare themselves for the challenges that are to come. Because Jesus knows that his moment of suffering, that his challenge, his trial that is to come, is also going to be a challenge and a trial for the disciples. They're going to have their own, while their challenge is going to be different, they're going to have their own challenge that they face at that same moment. And he wants them to be prepared. And he wants them to prepare through prayer. Same as he does. And so he's inviting them here. It's an invitation to be ready for the challenges ahead. Now, if you read ahead, you know, spoiler alert, they don't do it. They come to their test, right? They don't pray here. They come to their test and they fail miserably, right? They abandon Jesus. They all run away. Peter denies Jesus outright. And unlike Jesus, they're not prepared and the enemy totally wipes them out. Jesus wants them to pray so they could be prepared just as he is prepared. He's aligning himself with God and finding the strength to do what comes next, to take the next step of obedience. And the disciples needed the same preparation, and instead, they go to sleep. They succumb to the flesh instead of living in the spirit. And if you only catch one thing here, this is the thing to catch. This is the, only, this is the, this is the main thing here, guys. The disciples' failure in what comes next, their, their failure in abandoning and denying Jesus is directly attributable to their half-hearted commitment to prayer. Their failure to obey God in the face of the challenge is directly attributable to their half-hearted commitment to prayer. Jesus tells them outright how to be ready and their lack of faith in the power of prayer 
leaves them as an easy target for the enemy. They don't believe in the power of prayer. They don't take the time to prepare themselves in this way. And the enemy comes in and takes them out. But we see Jesus, on the other hand, he continues to persevere in prayer. He shows what it means for the spirit to win over the flesh. And then returning to prayer for a second and a third time, while the disciples continue to sleep, we see Jesus' heart alignment grow more and more in tune with the Father. His prayer switches, it's subtle, but it's significant. His prayer switches from, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, to, my Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. It's a subtle change, but it's important, right? He, his time in prayer brings him into closer alignment with the will of God, into more union with him. It empowers him to face what is the will of God, even when he doesn't necessarily want to face it. It brings this greater union, this greater strength and empowerment. And you hear it in the prayer, right? It's not just that Jesus is resigned to his fate, but he's determined to do the mission that God has given him to carry out. It's not resignation, it's determination. It's not, uh, it's not withdrawal. He, he wants another way, but he recognizes that this is God's way. And if this is God's way, he's resolved to carry it out. And unlike the disciples, Jesus is prepared for the trial. He sets about the next steps in determination to do God's will while the disciples run away in search of what their own wisdom and will tells them. And prayer brings about so much in the scene, right? We see Jesus approaches it with honesty, with um, in emotional depth, with open-handedness, and it produces all of this fruit, right? It produces an awareness and alignment to the will of God. It produces a preparation and the strength to carry out that will. And it also produces this determination to stick with the plan regardless of the opposition. Prayer itself is what prepares Jesus to endure the cross. It's through prayer that Jesus is able to be the one who stands in our place, who drinks the wrath of God against our sin so that we don't have to. For Jesus to accomplish God's plan of redemption and salvation, he cannot skip this step. You know, we, we love to skip steps, right? Like, I remember growing up, like, in math class, like, when your teacher wouldn't make you show your work, you could just, like, skip steps and, and get to your answer a lot quicker. But Jesus tells us here, like, we can't skip steps. We can't skip prayer. But how often do we do so? Like, I'm guilty of that. I'm sure we all are. Like, we skip the step of prayer. We think we can do this without it. We're a lot like the disciples. Like, we want... Even though we genuinely, like, we're 100% down with Jesus, we want to see God do this redemptive work in our lives, in our communities, like, in our world. Like, we want to see God do his thing to bring his kingdom to bear. And yet we want to skip prayer. Or we want to breeze past it quickly. The disciples were all in on Jesus, right? They had devoted their lives. And yet when Jesus tells them to pray and prepare they trust themselves, they abandon the plan, and they, they, they don't pray. They skip the step, and it costs them. 
They pursue what seems wise in their eyes, what seems that they can do on their own strength and their own wisdom and their own intelligence. They think their way is enough instead of God's way. But the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is different. The way of your will be done is different. It's through, we learn in that way that it's through clear-minded engagement with God, with earnest prayer and open-handedness to the will of God that we're actually able to face obstacles. The breast preparation for the trials of life, for life lived in the way of the kingdom of God, in the midst of this brokenness, the way that, uh, the best way to prepare for that is through prayer. If we want to see uh, our world, our lives, the people that we know, our communities, if we want to see the flourishing of God's creation, we can't skip over prayer. And the disciples, they didn't believe it. And so they fall away. They fall away from the one who they given their lives to in this moment. It can, it can be really tempting. Like, I, it can be really tempting to believe that prayer can be a waste of time. And if you look at this story kind of on a surface level, you can believe, it's pretty easy to conclude that, that Jesus was wasting his time. Like, think about it. He, what he asked for, he doesn't get. Like, he asked for the cup to pass. And God's answer is no. He says, no, the cup can't pass. Like, this is it. This is the way. That's some interesting, like, theological hurdles, right? Jesus gets a no. And I think what this indicates is that prayer is about way more than yeses and noes. It should be deeply encouraging to us that Jesus gets a no. Like when we hear a no. Because it's not a matter of sinfulness. It's not a matter of not asking the right thing. It's not a matter of disobedience when we get no. When God says no. Like perfect, sinless Jesus, he asks in total faith in the what God can do. And God says no. So prayer must be about more than just yeses and noes. It's more about aligning ourselves with God. There, there's a reactive prayer where we respond to what we see around us and what we experience, but there's also this preparatory prayer. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's preparatory. He's preparing himself to live for what he taught in the Lord's Prayer when he said, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's preparing and aligning ourselves with God's will as we face the struggle of living in a broken world. Prayer empowers us to take action, to live in God's way, even in the midst of the brokenness of the world as we pursue the flourishing of his creation. If we want to see people flourish, if we want to flourish, we can't skip prayer. We must do more than pray for sure but we cannot do less. Jesus shows us that prayer is great power, but it gives us the resolve to continue to follow God, even in the face of overwhelming opposition and struggle. And it's not just an isolated prayer, it's prayer and community. Like even though the disciples fall asleep and don't support Jesus, we shouldn't miss the point that we must pray in community. We must be surrounded by others. And as we close, I want us to consider how we can apply these truths to our life today. And I want us to remember that, that Reality Church exists because of prayer. 
If you know the story of how the church was planted, you know that, the, that this church was birthed out of much prayer. And we've always been a community that's marked and formed and shaped by prayer. Prayer has been a, it's a primary posture. It's a, a primary value, a primary identifier of what it means to be a part of RCB. That's why we incorporate prayer into everything that we do. We have prayer. We pray at Sundays at the queue, Sundays on Zoom. We pray on Thursday mornings and evenings, and we want everyone to be involved in these things. Like it's the place where we want everyone to get plugged in. It's at the point of prayer. Because we believe that we can accomplish nothing lasting and meaningful for the kingdom of God apart from prayer. The psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So we are constantly praying that God would build the house, and that he would lead us as we join him in the house that he's building. So let's be a community who persistently petitions God, who comes to him with honesty and with emotional depth and an open-handedness to his will, who prepare ourselves to face the challenges that are ahead with, by living into God's kingdom mission and preparing ourselves through prayer. So I, I would challenge you this week uh, to, to meditate on this question. It should be on the screen. How does a half-hearted commitment to prayer prevent you from living into God's way? So chew on that question this week. I encourage you to meditate, it on, meditate on it on your own, uh, to talk about it with someone, to, to have a conversation about it, and then to pray about it with someone. How does a half-hearted commitment to prayer prevent you from living into God's way? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you for his obedience, even to the point of death. Lord, thank you for his example, his example of, of persistent and, and powerful prayer, Lord. I pray that we would be a people. We would be a community that's marked by prayer that is empowered and strengthened through prayer that seeks your will through prayer. Lord, would you help us to, to live and to take action in our world from a posture of prayer? Lord, would you empower us to do your will, to live your way, to, to see and to help your kingdom to come in this world through a place of prayer? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd encourage you now, as we close, um, if you have communion supplies nearby, if you have um, some bread and some wine, do this in remembrance of Christ and his death as he, as he was obedient to God to the point of death, and remembering that it's the blood of Christ which is shed for us and the, um, the body of Christ broken for us. So here's been benediction now spoken over you as you go off into your week. Go now and live in the spirit of your baptism, even when you are led into wild and hard places. With repentance and trust, give yourselves to God. And with fasting and prayer, strengthen yourselves against the ways of the tempter. And may God enfold you in tender and lasting love. May Christ be beside you in times of struggle. And may the spirit guide you back to the path wherever you stray that you may keep the covenant. 
we go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Have a great week, and we will see you again next week.